Hello and welcome to the Centre Trail podcast. My name is John Harney. Tara Strauch and I will be back next week, but before then I wanted to start the new semester here at Centre College by sharing some student work with you. This past spring, I taught a class on the history of popular modern sport that focused mostly on the emergence of team sports in the 19th and 20th century. As part of the coursework, I put my students into groups of four or five and asked them to put together about 20 minute or so podcast episodes that talked about a major historical topic or theme that interested them. I shared one of these episodes earlier in the summer, and I now am sharing the rest. I'm very proud of the work that they did. I think they did really well. You can find more of their work at sites.center.edu popular sport, or you can always go to centertrail.com to get in touch with myself or Dr. Stroke to find out more about the work students are doing here at Centre. Today's episode comes from John Jones, Zoe Doubles, Parker Sennon, and Sam Goldison in their podcast episode, The All-American Sports Show. It is the year 1942. America had just been pulled into World War II and its men were being shipped off to Europe to fight Germany's expansion. During this time, the American pastime, baseball, was in jeopardy. Men that would have been swinging bats on the diamond were now shooting guns on foreign soil. Attendance of games fell, as more and more people were called to help in the war effort. The solution was a simple one, and in came the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Thanks to Philip K. Wrigley, the owner of the Chicago Cubs, 64 women playing on four teams picked up the abandoned bats and balls and swept the nation, stealing the hearts of the country and providing a sense of normality during the troubling years of war. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest edition of the All-American Sports Show. As always, I'm your host, Zoe Doubles, here with my co-host, John Jones, and today's episode is entitled, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Today we'll focus on the formation of the Women's Baseball League. Here tonight, we have a couple of experts to help guide our conversation and answer some questions. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Hello listeners, my name is Sam Goldeisen, and I went to Center College in Danville, Kentucky, where I majored in history. After graduation, I became a historian with the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., with an area of focus in women in sports during the 20th century. During the past few years, I have decided to focus mainly on researching the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And I'm Parker Slynn, and I actually went to center with Sam, but instead of going on to get a, an actual job, I went to go play baseball <laughs> with the Dodgers and pursue a career in the MLB. Uh, sadly, my career got cut short because I tore my Tommy John, but uh, that's what began my historical career, and that's why I'm here today. So uh, since then, just kind of been researching about how the past has influenced opportunity and the experience in the modern sporting world. Awesome. Well, thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here with us today. Of course. Yeah, thanks. Anytime. And to start off the show, give our listeners a little background. How was the Women's Baseball League started? Well, Philip Wrigley started the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League in 1942 after the Major and Minors Men's League were disbanded due to the war. Wrigley was very skeptical towards whether this concept of women playing a man's game could even work. He even debated if whether or not it would be better just to suspend America's pastime till the end of war. Some thought this would be a better idea because they were worried about people paying to see third, even fourth, fifth string players on the iconic diamond. Yeah, I mean, I think that that Wrigley was really onto something there because 
I'd pay to see Joe DiMaggio and Bob Feller, but not some kid who barely made it into the minor leagues. Hell, I don't even watch the minor leagues now. Yeah, John, I, I really don't blame you there. The the minors are very, very rough. <laughs> no kidding. But, yeah, um, that's exactly what Wrigley had in mind. Also, the commissioner of baseball had in mind, Judge Landis. They were both worried that just nobody would come to these games. Landis was even so worried that he went in to talk to President FDR about what they should do about the game. Because, of course, back then, the president actually cared about his people. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that is an excellent point. Okay, so Landis is talking to Roosevelt and trying to get advice on what to do about baseball. What does he find out? Yeah, so uh, FDR actually went on to write something called the Green Light Letter. The president did not want the majors or minors to be suspended because it provided people with something that they could do when they weren't hard at work for the war effort. Roosevelt wanted the men's leagues to continue, but Wrigley still feared that more men would be pulled into the war effort, so he went ahead with his idea. Okay. So, this game, baseball, is obviously classically a men's game at this point in time. How exactly did this Wrigley fella get women to try out for the team? Was it just one big open tryout? Well, Wrigley actually sent out scouts all over the country, John. They were searching for the best players, and of course these women not only had to be very skilled on the diamond, but also white and beautiful. By the time they were done, 200 women were chosen for tryouts at Wrigley Field in Chicago. By the end, they were placed on four teams that the league started with. These teams were the Rockford Peaches, which have a special place in my heart, the Kinshaw Comets, the Racing Bells, and the South Bend Blue Sox. As the league gained popularity, more women wanted to play, of course, so more teams were added. When the league was at its peak in 1948, there were actually 10 teams. That's really impressive. Like, 200 women showing up for tryouts and 10 teams at the height of the league. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. But now, there were four teams to begin with in the league. How are these locations selected for the teams? Where were they? Well, yeah, Wrigley actually had a really tough time finding places to that would actually you know, take these teams in because not only was it expensive, but you needed to have a big population of people in these cities to actually come to games and make the right. money. Of course. So uh, Wrigley, he kind of helped out with half of the stuff, ended up paying for half the teams, but the cities that decided to host also had to pay for the other half of the team. Another reason these cities were selected was for their proximity to the league headquarters in the Windy City of Chicago. Hmm. Ah, good old Chicago. Well, okay. So at this point, we've figured out players, we figured out location. Now all we're missing is a person to run the teams. Uh, Parker, can you tell me, how were team managers decided? Yeah, Wrigley, being the uh, smart guy he was, actually decided to take some former big leaguers and make them the managers. So these first managers included Johnny Gottsleg, Bert Nyhoff, Josh Billings, and Eddie Stumpf. And Eddie Stumpf actually was a catcher in the Brewers organization. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's really exciting. And I can only imagine being one of these original women to take the diamond. And on that note, let's really dig deep and talk about the obvious gender differences that the formation of this league would have had to deal with and face at this time. What are some of the other big aspects of the girls' league that sets them apart from the MLB? Were the rules different just because they were female? Well, actually, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball team started off as a softball league. Hmm. Men didn't have much faith in the women's abilities and didn't think that the softball league would hold public interest because the sport 
was baseball, and they were trying to keep people interested in it. So, eventually, the women went from underhand pitching to overhand, then leading off, and then stealing bases, just like baseball. But it was important to start the league off as softball because people thought baseball was too masculine for women for whatever reason. Of course they did. (laughs) Naturally. It's fine. But... With the gradual changes over the six years and 12 incredible seasons, the game was turned into baseball and the league into the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Wow. That's actually really fascinating, Parker. I had no idea that the league started out as softball. Although, okay, you mentioned something interesting there, that the women needed to start as softball players so they wouldn't be seen as too masculine to the public. But I know between softball and baseball... There's only a few real differences, but it can't have just been the pitching style, right? What other means did they use as methods of preventing being seen as too masculine? Well, the overall public opinion was that no woman should be playing sports, period. So the league was really making people jump out of their comfort zones, especially putting women in such a special place like the baseball diamond. But in order to keep the church ladies calm... I bet we all have somebody in mind. The women had to take charm and beauty school classes, wear dresses whenever they were on the diamond. There were also rules about how long their hair could be, no smoking or drinking, taking out all the fun if you ask me, (laughs) wear appropriate feminine attire when not in uniform, and all social events had to be approved by their chaperones. And there were also strict beauty regimens and rules of etiquette to follow. Parker, could you imagine having to do these things when in the league? I know a lot of guys wouldn't be very happy about that. One of them including myself. (laughs) Oh my gosh, no. I am personally baffled about all of these outlandish rules that these women had to follow in order to be a part of the league. I mean, if you look at modern NFL players before they weren't allowed to wear custom cleats, so many of them were getting fined for shoes that didn't fit the guideline set. So I wonder, did these uniforms receive any backlash from the players? These women were very dedicated and knew that it was a very unique opportunity for them to be playing a professional sport, especially at the time. Of course, there were some, but most agreed to follow the strict guidelines. One player, Sue Kidd, is quoted by saying, I would have done most anything that wasn't sinful just for the opportunity to play baseball, which I just think is incredible. Also, many players thought that the charm school actually helped them later in their careers outside of baseball. Well, since there were so many restrictions in the way players had to act and the rules of the game that they played, I can only imagine that the uniforms themselves were also restricted and tailored to the ideas of the times. Uh, Parker, can you tell us a little bit about what those uniforms were like and how specifically the players reacted to those guidelines? As I said before, these women were not happy at all with with these uniforms. These uniforms consisted of a belt, a short sleeve tunic dress with a short skirt that was to be no more than six inches above the knee, which was very risque at the time. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that would have been pretty short for the time. I wish my daughter today would dress that conservatively. Oh, Lord, don't we all? (laughs) You know, I do wonder what the church ladies back then would have said if they saw the way some women dress today. Well, there'd probably be a lot more ambulances on the street, John. (laughs) (laughs) But, like Parker was saying, these uniforms made it really hard for women to pitch, run, and slide into bases, leaving them bruised and pretty scraped up after many of the games. One player, Mary Lou Sidenka, a pitcher for the Grand Rapids Chicks, noted that the uniform was uncomfortable for a pitcher, as she is quoted as saying, It was not a good idea from the start. As a pitcher, you lift your arms up. 
It was a one-piece thing, so the whole thing comes up. You learned to get a uniform that was bigger so you had room to pitch. Many players made similar comments, but over the time, players decided to change the uniform in order to make it more suitable to play in. Lewis Youngin, a catcher in the league, said that the miniskirt was born after all these changes had been made. Oh, wow. I had no idea that the athletes had so many problems with these uniforms, or that there were so many dangers associated with them. Okay, so we've talked a lot about how these women got to the diamond, and their transition from playing softball to playing baseball, and what they wore, but... Tell us a little more about the problems and issues mentioned earlier, such as public interest. Was the league able to do its job and keep people coming to the Diamonds? Well, yeah, after the public got over how just absolutely crazy it was for women to be playing a man's game. preposterous. <laughs> yeah, but after that, um, there's actually a lot of interest in this league. The original four teams were actually well-liked in their cities and saw close to 200,000 people per game. At its peak, the league saw 910,000 fans. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing, actually. Uh, Parker, you mentioned you did play for the LA Dodgers, right? I did, yeah. Well, you know, they only get crowds of about 50,000 on average. And even the World Series only saw crowds up to 93,000. Yeah, at a minor league game, we were lucky to get two people in the stands. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, as many would say, women are just better than men. But, <laughs> of course, these women were very well received by the public. They were also very impressed with the high caliber of play these women displayed. As previously mentioned, many doubted the abilities of these female athletes, but they were able to prove everyone wrong with their successes and their ultimate athleticism. The Cubs manager in the mid-1940s, Charlie Grimm, is noted as saying that he would even pay 50 thousand dollars to see a woman play if only she were a boy wow i would would like to be paid that much now (laughs) (laughs) sam but i guess it's amazing how these women were doubted by so many in the beginning and then they just completely turned the public's opinion around on its head and in such a short amount of time Yeah, I would definitely agree that these athletes capture the hearts of the nation. They were able to keep America's pastime alive while the men were off fighting the war. I would even go as far to say that they made these men proud while taking up their bats and balls. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there was undoubtedly a lot of pride there with crowds as big as that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do have to ask, though, we have covered a lot of ground here, but... Do either of you have any opinions on whether or not there were any other factors that played into the league's success? Well, yeah, one of the biggest things that contributed to its success was that the public was finally beginning to accept the idea that women could be useful in places other than just at home. This, of course, was helped by the fact that women were taking over men's jobs in the factories as men were off in the war. Women transferring from housewives to Rosie the Riveter was generally more accepted after more men began to join the war effort. Of course. I mean, Rosie the Riveter is still so iconic. Mm-hmm. Like, I can only count the times I've had to replace my poster on the wall <laughs> from moving. Yeah, I actually have a friend back home who has that poster on the wall, and I always loved seeing it. I have one in my house. <laughs> Parker, you're the odd one out. <laughs> but Rosie the Riveter became such a patriotic symbol and a guideline for women back then. So how did this uh, patriotism play a role in the success of the league? Well, Wrigley really wanted to dive into this patriotism that was just sweeping the nation. 
So, during this time, he had the women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League stand in a V at home plate during the national anthem in order to symbolize victory and to just keep the hope alive that these boys were coming home. The women also played games where the proceeds would go to the American Red Cross and hospitals where wounded soldiers were recovering. Wow. That's, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, the reach that these women had to the community was very far. But, you know... It's hidden away these days from so many people. I mean, then again, I guess most things are until you really go looking for them. How many things in history are? <laughs> <laughs> most, I would say. Well, they say the victors write the history books. Yeah. Oh, God. So true. But now, let's get down to brass tacks. So we already have heard how much some of the best of these women would be paid if they were men, of course. But how was their pay for, you know, your average female player comparable to the men's league? Well, the women's salary ranged from, you know, $45 to $85 a week. Oh, God, I couldn't imagine having to live off that. <laughs> no way. <laughs> well, they did. And this actually comes out to be an annual salary of $4,400 or lower. Well, as compared to the top MLB player at the time, who was Joe Cronin in 1943... He had an annual salary of $27,000. Wow, I can't believe there was that much of a difference between the two leagues. I guess that just goes to show the continued gender bias between the MLB and the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Wow, John, that is a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I prefer Agapibble. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> While I do agree with you, John, there are many things that separated these women from the MLB, especially salary being one of the bigger ones. But I think here it should be noted that these women were making more than they would have had they worked in the factories like their female counterparts. The annual salary for a factory worker during this time was only $2,000. Wow. So these women were actually given some credit for the hard work that they were putting in. Yeah, that's much better. Yeah. I would take that extra $2,000 yeah. yeah. and run with it. <laughs> So I guess now going back to keeping the interest of the nations alive, was women's baseball seen as that official sport, almost if not on par with the MLB, or more as a form of just entertainment for the male masses? Because, I mean, obviously there are so many different rules and regulations. The women had to be beautiful and just upstanding pillars for the female virtue at the time. Yeah, of course. While I do think that the league started off with this role of being an entertainment for the men and people who weren't hard at work for the war effort, I think after people saw how great that these women were at playing the sport and even got crowds as big as the men's at the time, which even bigger than the crowds now, yeah. I think it shows that towards the end of the league that this game was seen as more in comparison to the MLB than just women running around a dusty old diamond for entertainment with their short skirts blowing up for the men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly what you just said, Sam. Like, once men kind of got over the, the idea of going out to the, to the baseball field just to get their fix watching these girls run around in their short skirts, I think there were actually genuine followings uh, with these teams, and I'm sure there are just lifelong Bell fans out there, no doubt in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's really cool to see that it went that way, and, you know, with that, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask something that I've really been wondering all night, 
you know, you can't talk on this topic without bringing up a certain famous film. Oh, don't even finish. Let me guess. A League of Their Own. That's the one. <laughs> and, you know, okay, this whole time we've been talking, I've been dying to ask you, Sam and Parker, how realistic is that film? I mean, it's quite the beloved title in terms of sports movies, and past the charming acting of Tom Hanks and Gina Davis, I just need to know, is it really close to reality or just a facade? Yeah, well, I've actually done a lot of extensive research on this because it was a question that I had first had when I like came across this league. And according to LaVon Pepper Davis, who served as an informant for the film, she's quoted as saying, it treats baseball seriously and with respect. Known as Pepper Pear in her sporting days, Davis was a member of the Women's League. She said that the league was full of exuberant athletes who played hard on and off the field, as do their movie counterparts. Overall, the movie held the league with respect and did its best to portray the women with honor that they deserved. So I think that you have to say, yes, it was really close to reality as they can make it for Hollywood and not just a facade. Wow. That's really awesome to hear. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's a more modern look because it yeah, was in done in 1992. Yeah. Modern. Um, but I guess let's bring us up a little more to date. Uh, how do you think the Agapibble <laughs> influenced women in baseball now? Oh, where do I start? Um, gosh, I would say the first noticeable impact the league had on women in baseball was that it opened up many doors for women to play in the Negro Leagues, hmm. which is something uh, that doesn't really get much credit nowadays. And Honestly, before I started my research, I didn't even know that women were allowed into the Negro Leagues. Yeah, I didn't either. As you may or may not know, the Negro Leagues were very profitable, and they were always looking for ways to make more money. So this is why they came up with the idea to have portable lights for night games. And this was years before the MLB had come up with this idea. So they went to the the Women's League and said, wow, maybe there's money to be made with women. So... Uh, they found one woman named Tony Stone, who ended up signing with the Indianapolis Clowns in 1953, had a very long and successful career, and she wasn't just the first woman to play in the Negro Leagues, but she was the very first woman to play in any professional league oh, wow. at all. Oh, wow. hmm. I believe that the owners of Negro League teams saw how successful the AAGPBL was and decided to try to see if the falling for women would be the same as it was in the Negro Leagues. Well, what about baseball today? Well, today we can see women holding many roles in professional and amateur baseball. I'm sure we all remember the inspiring performance of Monet Davis in the Little League World Series just a few years ago. She became a role model for girls everywhere, showing that not only can they play in a boys' game, Hmm. but they can even beat the hell out of them. This was the first time I actually took my head out of the history books looking at something new. (laughs) And we also see many women who hold positions off the field in baseball. Mm-hmm. Tyler Tuminia started as an intern with the Hudson Valley Renegades and quickly worked her way into a paid position there. Mm-hmm. And just a year later, she was offered a position with the Gold Clan Group, which is a huge group that works with many, many professional baseball organizations. And she's currently the senior vice president there. Also, Kim Nang has been one of the most influential people in all of baseball. Over the past 20 years, she's held multiple positions with multiple organizations, even holding an assistant general manager positions with one of the teams. But in 2011, she took a slightly different route and accepted the position of senior VP of MLB operations. Wow. 
Yeah, just a just a small change in pace there. <laughs> well, it was really incredible to hear about all of this. I mean, women in sports has really come a long way since the time of the peaches. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, everyone, this is all the time we have for this podcast. So I just want to give another big thanks to our experts, Sam and Parker. Thank you all so much for coming. Yes, thank you yeah. for having yeah, us. Thank you for having us. And uh, I hope you guys will be guest stars again in the future. To our listeners, I hope to see you all next week for Home Run Hounds, the story of how I taught my dog to play baseball. See you in the next one.